Isaiah chapter 41. Our unseen friend is the title of this evening's study. And the prophet, God speaking through him, will first address the nations and then Israel. And finally, the idols and the idolaters together. So looking right at verse 1, Isaiah 41, that's where we are. Verse 1, keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near. Then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. Well, it starts off sounding like this is a nice invitation, but it's a it's God um, calling for a courtroom hearing with the Gentiles. And the proceedings have started. He's going to challenge them and their heathen beliefs and their uh, uh, hatred towards his people. This is what he's calling them for. And the prophet is laying this out, not only for the generation that he lives in, for the generation that will be a hundred years later, or over a hundred years later, coming out of Babylon, and then down through the ages for the believers. As we consider this, we get to see uh, uh, God in action in a very uh, splendid way because he's dealing directly with false beliefs, and we get to see what he thinks about these things uh, and from a, a, a different perspective than other sections of Scripture, I think. So this first verse is aimed solely at the Gentiles, where he says, Keep silent before me, O coastlands. And uh, this is coming from a Jewish prophet, summonsing them to reason about God on behalf of Israel's future, the part of it. The coastlands are the distant lands, the farthest regions from where God's people will spread, especially after they are sent uh, or released, free to go from Babylon and down through the ages. Uh, these coastlands lead to inlands. And so the peoples of the world are in sight with that word. Um, it is revelant beyond the day of Isaiah into the, unto the last days, until the return of Christ, what he is going to address here. And so he says also in verse 1, and let the people renew their strength. In other words, collect yourselves, be ready, and come before me. It's a challenge. I started to name this even message a challenge from God, but I wanted to keep it closer to the spirit of comfort that is started off this second section of the book of Isaiah in chapter 40, Comfort, Yes, Comfort My People. And we'll get to this unseen friend as we move into God's address to his people. But right now he's dealing with Gentile thought. And uh, he says, let them come near and let them speak. So it is Yahweh versus the man-maids. When I say the man-maids, I don't mean men who are acting like maids. I mean the man-made gods. Present your evidence why you should be taken seriously. Homemade religion. And we do this to this day whenever we... Uh, in, engage people and discuss, you know, why we believe in Christ and why we have categorically rejected every other religion on earth. Christianity, as a reminder, is incompatible with every other religion on earth. And so he says, let us come near together for judgment. Let's settle this. And that word judgment tells us that this is not, um, you know, he's not inviting them to encourage them. 
He wants to get to the bottom of this with whoever will listen. Verse 2. Now, still, God speaking through the Jewish prophet. Who, he says, who raised up? This is a question. Who raised up one from the east? Who, in righteousness, called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them the dust to his sword as driven stubble to his bow? So, uh, again, opening with the questions, there are six of these who questions in verses uh, two through four. Now, where he says, who raised up one from the east? He is referring to King Cyrus of the Persians, who is not going to be born for about another 150 years. And he is naming him by name. And this is where he's calling the other gods. Come on, bring your stuff to me. I'm going to tell you some of what I can do. What I can do is I could tell the future. And that's what this, you know, the challenge is about. What can your little idols do? They can't do anything. You're going to run to them for help. And they're not going to help you. And when I don't help my people, it's because I told them they were doing wrong and I'm going to punish them. But when I tell my people I'm going to help them, that is what I'm going to do. And this is just an overview of, of what is going on in this chapter. Now, the prophet Isaiah does not name Cyrus as this character here in verse 2. And he's going to talk about him a little bit in this opening section until chapter 44. It's his style of writing. But he doesn't leave you, you know, uh, you're still engaged. And if you've read through Isaiah, you know you're reading right along. There's stuff you don't understand, but there's a lot you do understand. So he introduces him here. The direction uh, at this point is vague, but it will be very clear by the time he gets to chapter 44, verse 28, where he names him. And then again in chapter 45 is a second witness in verse 1. And uh, the Jews living in the days of Cyrus would have, and we know from the book of Daniel that the Jews were high up in the Babylonian kingdom. Well, Cyrus, of course, he conquers, well, the Persians, the Medes and Persians, they conquer the Babylonians, uh, and we, we see Daniel still plugged in to the leadership. And so we know, it's safe to, to conclude, that there were Jewish, uh, righteous Jews, high up in the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, who would have pointed this out to him. It'd be, it'd be almost silly not to, to take that view, as what we know just about human nature and how, how, the, world go, how the world turns. And so, um, uh, Isaiah, if he spoke these prophecies in Hezekiah's day, 700 years before Christ, just using that as our, our benchmark for our timeline, give or take 10, 15 years, really doesn't matter. He's still going to be 100 years away. Uh, does it matter if you call a prophecy 50 years away or 60? Oh, it was only 61 years. Hey, you didn't make it in. Uh, it's, it's an incredible prophecy. Uh, the critics, of course, hate it, and they try to go, well, he wrote it after the fact, but there's too much evidence against that. Anyway, uh, his prophecies about Cyrus predate the birth by about 150 years and predates his rule as king about 120 years. This is incredible information. This Gentile king, who we don't believe became, became a believer, God used him, but 
It doesn't seem he became a believer, and I'll open some of that up later. But he's, this king, Cyrus, such an important figure to the Jewish history, he's named in Second Chronicles, he's named in Ezra, here in Isaiah, and also in the book of Daniel. Daniel probably lived long enough to uh, meet with, with this Cyrus. Anyway, he says here in verse 2 that he is from the east. Literally, the Hebrew is the rising sun from the direction of the rising, rising sun. In verse 25, he is said to be from the north. Well, there's no contradiction, because Cyrus ruled over the Persians, which is modern-day Iran, uh, Iran, and you have an Iraq and Iran. There should be an Iran. Anyway, there's not. Uh, coming back to this, blocking out of my head silly jokes, um, he is ruler over the Persians to the east, but also the people of Media to the north, up towards uh, Crimea. And uh, he is told, we are told in verse 25 that he will trample the opposition. In chapter 44, we are uh, told that he is referred to as a shepherd of God's people and that he is going to be the one that releases the Jewish people to go back to, the, to Jerusalem where they will build their temple and, and rebuild their walls. And in that sense, he is a shepherd given by God to uh, take care of the people of Israel. And that's why he's mentioned in the book of Ezra. And in, in the first four verses, is very clear Cyrus is the one giving the edict. In chapter 45 of Isaiah, he is appointed by God, we're told, to do what he's doing. Well, he's being introduced here again. And then in chapter 46, he is referred to as a raptor, a bird of prey that cannot be stopped because he is God's instrument. And uh, that is just more exciting to what we're going to get. Verse, continuing in, in verse 2, it says, Who in righteousness called him to his feet. Now what I'm getting out of this as a believer is my God is sovereign. My God does not have a future and a past distinction like we do. It's all one to him. And he is totally in control of it. And I know his character. He's not a Lex Luthor uh, character that is uh, evil. He's good. And he's loving. And this is the God who is, has this power that Isaiah is introducing and why it is so uh, relevant to the believer. He says, who, who in righteousness called him to his feet. God is calling, is appointing Cyrus. Cyrus doesn't know this unless, until the righteous Jews may have pointed it out to him. But uh, here we need to observe the difference in the pronouns. The who, in, in, in this clause, who in righteousness, is God. Called him, that's Cyrus, uh, to his feet, at the feet of God, to come before him. And it's uh, colorful language to say that God put Cyrus on his radar for a purpose. And um, when... When we say, the, who is a someone controlling Cyrus to bring the Jews back to their people? It's God. In the days of Ezra, they'll be able to point that out. Well, Zerubbabel. They'll say, you know what? What we're living here as we're packing up to go back to Jerusalem, this is just what the prophet Isaiah said a century ago. That ought to encourage their faith and take away from them reasons to go back to idols. Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings. Now God is saying, I handed the, I'm going to hand the nations to Cyrus. 
and uh, he is going to free my people. And Cyrus comes in. He has a different approach. You know, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they would conquer. They'd take the people from their homeland and make them assimilate amongst other people, and that would keep them from uh, organizing and rebelling. Cyrus has a different approach. I think we covered this in Daniel pretty extensively, um, but in Ezra. Cyrus approaches, no, let's put the people back in their land. Let's support their culture. And uh, that is, is how uh, it, it came about. Notice how here where he says, who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings. Notice how Isaiah delivers this future event in the past tense. Treating prophecy so sure of fulfillment that it's already taken place. Because from God's perspective, the future is always past. Or else he couldn't tell the future. Is it God can't learn? He knows it all. How does he do it? If I knew, then I'd be on his level. And none of us know. We know. We, he tells us. And he's going to push it right up front in, in the, these next few chapters of Isaiah about God's ability to foretell and to make it happen and to name names along the way. For future generations to trust him. And then God doesn't overplay it so that we, you know, sort of, you know, treat him like a, a Ouija board or one of those other demonic elements, a crystal ball or something. He's not that to us. He is God. We're subject to his will. We want to line up with where we belong in his will and not trying to squeeze something out of him all the time. So, uh, well, anyway, um, for, Jesus said this He said, I'm going to the cross. And I'm coming back. And then he adds this, John chapter 14. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Well, in that case, it's just a matter of days. They, you know, he marched into Jerusalem as the Lamb of God. They arrested him, crucified him. He died. He rose again. He showed himself to the, the uh, disciples uh, and in waves. And so it's still miraculous. It's the same person, the same Jesus that told his disciples that when it comes to pass, you may believe. It's why Isaiah is giving us what he's giving us, that his people, God's people, will believe. And we can't expect God to duplicate this for every single generation and every single person. That's where faith comes in. God says, I'm going to give you enough information to get you there. And from that point, from that point, I will come along with you, and I'll help you out. And he does it through his Holy Spirit. It says, who gave them the dust to, the, to his sword and driven stubble to his bow. This is what makes, you know, sometimes the Old Testament difficult, and you've got to just dig. One, uh, an alternate translation that doesn't take away from this. The point is still the same, that Cyrus will have a complete victory. He will vanquish his enemies. But an alternate translation is he makes their sword as dust and their bow as driven stubble. And so you can go either way, but you're going to come to the same point that God is going to make Cyrus um, invincible. He will trample his enemies, as mentioned. Now, verse 3, continuing with the question format of beginning with who pursued them pass and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet. 
Well, God is going to have Cyrus, the future king of Persia, uh, grow an empire, and uh, his conquest will be over territories he had not been to before. And that is uh, just appealing to the student uh, who is alive in the days of uh, the fulfillment of these things. Just like Isaiah said it would happen. We're doing that with Revelation now. We're looking at all this junk coming out of technology. When I say junk, how the evil use of it. Because technology is good in the hands of good people. But it is, uh, it can, it's going to be a beast. I mean, the weapons of war are changing at such a rate with these supersonic missiles. I, I mean, uh, it's really just more and more a time for Christians to remain steadfast in the basics of our faith. Um, anyway, that verse 4 is, is saying that he's going to conquer territory that he's not even been to before. Uh, verse 4, who has performed and done it, calling the generation from the beginning. I, Yahweh, the first and the last, and with the last I am he. Let me reread that. I, Yahweh, am the first, and with the last I am. I am he, really is, we would say, I am God, the eternal, existed before history. He will exist uh, forever. He always has been here. And this is a divine description appropriated by Jesus Christ. We know that, students of the New Testament. We read the Lord say, I am the first, and the one that is the last, I'm he too. It might be not good English, but that's the point. So we pick it up, Revelation 1, and I hope I never preach from the Old Testament without quoting the New Testament. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And everybody knows in the New Testament, when we use the word Lord, we're talking of Jesus. And uh, there is a, a direct appropriation of the Lord Jesus uh, to being uh, divine and uh, applying this verse from Isaiah to himself. And where it says, I am he, again, appropriately appropriated uh, by Christ to himself. John chapter 8, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It is uh, an exact. It It is no stretch to make it mean what, I, what it says. And uh, it's very beautiful to see Christ walking around in the Old Testament in these verses. And, uh, and it's just all over the place. Verse 5, The coastlands saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Verse 6, Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Be of good courage. So you got to watch the context. This is, it shows up in Joel, uh, one of the pronounced places where Joel t- says, go ahead, you know, prepare for war, beat your plowshares into swords. He's not encouraging God's people. He's telling the enemy, you want to fight? Well, get your stuff ready. Well, here, it's uh, the, the nations facing Cyrus and his invading armies. The prophet is saying they're going to rally together. When the day comes for Cyrus to start marching through territories that didn't belong to him yet, They're going to arm themselves. The nations are going to turn to each other for help. And um, they're going to make more idols doing it. 
they're going to double down in, uh, with their fake gods. And Isaiah is trying to bring this to the front. And say, Let me show you what human nature does without God. And it's quite proud of this. And we see the, 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 the secular world without God. There's, there's camaraderie there. there. There are fraternities and brotherhoods. And there are noble ca- human characteristics about it. Human love is not evil. It is the, you know, the phileo, the stroge. It's, it's nothing evil in and of itself. It just becomes a problem when that's as far as you go. Um, it's, it's, you, you, it's like sinking on a nice boat. Uh, you've got some nice things there, but you still perish uh, without uh, reaching your destination. And agape love is that it, it, it's love with God's fingerprints. And we struggle to have that kind of love because it is an exotic love. We, it is imported from heaven. It doesn't come natural to us anymore um, since, since Eden. Anyway, these human alliances, they're, they're not able to defeat God's prophetic word. This is what I think about his number being six, six, and six. The scripture says, calculate his number. I think... As arrogant as evil is, the personified evil, Satan, Lucifer, Antichrist, and those who side, uh, I think they're going to mock the Bible and intentionally use that number. Just playing right into God's hand. God is saying, I gave you the number to tell you what you were going to do. Thinking, you would say, wait, wait, let's not do this. Let's repent. But no, you won't. So I've bypassed you, and I've turned my attention to my martyrs. And that, I think, is how it's going to play out. Uh, that it will be an intentional, because the world knows about that number. And I'm seeing it pop up on some things every now and then. I'm saying, you know what, I'm getting the feeling that these techies behind this stuff is, is doing this on purpose. Uh, well, uh, it really doesn't matter if I'm right or wrong. God is right, and it's going to be that number. And I won't be here to be worried about it. Uh, and neither will you who believe. Anyway, they will turn to their idols for help. One of the worst things they could do. And we want to tell that to an unbeliever in trouble. One of the worst things you can do is turn somewhere else than Jesus Christ for help. And maybe you want to say, add to that, ah, you know, maybe you don't believe Christ because you've had bad experiences with Christians or people who say they're Christians. Uh, that's not enough in the court of God to get you off the hook. Uh, God is not going to say, well, I told you to follow my people. He's going to say, I told you to follow me. Anyway, sharp satire coming from Isaiah. No surprise there. I started a file, you know, uh, sarcasm from the prophets. I couldn't keep up with it. It's so much. It's just, this is getting to be clerical. I need a scribe just to enter these things. Uh, anyway, he's, um, he describes the various trades, the workmen, helping each other fabricate useless gods. He's mocking them. Now, what they're doing here with woods and metals and other materials, uh, the end-time generation will do with their imagination and technology. That uh, deep fake is upon us. And um, hopefully more to come about how this um, artificial intelligence is really shaping humanity into a funnel to go right to Antichrist, right into his arms. If once they reject the truth of Christ, they're going to love what technology has for them. Tragedy for most.
Anyway, uh, in verse 6, it, um, it, it talks about just a natural thing of circling the wagons. Everyone helped his neighbor, encouraging each other to defy um, Cyrus. Put, you know, die with your boots on. Yeah, but God is not on your side here. And, you, you know, it would be better if you, you would submit. Um, I don't have long pauses in the pulpit usually. Chuck Smith used up all those. <laughs> but every now and then I try it out, and it's very uncomfortable for me. I feel like i got to stay in motion. Can't hit a moving target so easily. Anyway, uh, I was going to criticize him, but he moved to the next point, and I forgot what the other one was. All right. Uh, God, can he use the unconverted on such a scale as world leaders? Uh, of course, we know. Especially to help his people and fulfill prophecy. He used two different Egyptian kings in a very pronounced way, or Egyptian pharaohs. There was the pharaoh in the time of Joseph, who, who couldn't help himself when he meets Jacob. He says to Jacob, how old are you? <laughs> That's a funny scene. Jacob, I'm 135. He's like, I knew it. <laughs> you, well, I enjoyed it. Anyhow, uh, that pharaoh was good. And then, of course, there was the wicked pharaoh, who heart, uh, whose heart was hardened. In other words, God just said, all right, I'll give you what you want. I'll turn you over to your own uh, deception. And I know a lot of theologians make a lot of um, twists and turns with that, and I think, unfortunately. Anyway, he used wicked Herod. He used cowardly Pontius Pilate to fulfill the crucifixion plan. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of Yahweh. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And that is precisely what we're going to see happen. We see that happen with Nebuchadnezzar, who was even more powerful than Cyrus, as kings go. Anyway, verse 7, So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil. This is a blacksmith and the one peening, I guess. Uh, saying, it is ready for the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. So here he is, the satire on how they make their gods. He said, take me down to the shop. I want to see how you guys create your creator. <laughs> it's the goofiest thing, right? Idolatry. High up on the list of rebukes from the prophets, because it is high up on God's list to rebuke this madness. The capacity of man for sin is astounding. Humanity is very complex. When you think about all the hang-ups, you, you think about the people who walk around in guilt that they don't deserve. They're no more guilty than other good people. And then you have the others who have a lot of guilt to lay on other people. <laughs> you used to have, a, back in the 60s and 70s, you know, trying to lay a guilt trip on me. We should revise that or revive it. And, and what are you trying to lay a guilt trip on me? I didn't do anything wrong. Stop making me feel bad. Not my fault you didn't finish your spinach. Uh, anyway, uh, verse 7 is where we are. Isaiah talking about them shaping these non-existent gods. God is seen using, again, Cyrus, while men try to use idols to deliver them from Cyrus, and it's going to fail. And all this passionate care, the costs, the craftsmanships, you see the alliteration there, the three C's, wasted on demonically 
influenced renderings of God? It's a good question to an unbeliever. What is your rendering of God? If you were given a pen, I just saw today that some, some artists use technology to show us what Jesus looked like. I mean, it's just like, a, you, you know, where does it, and people are just, this is fit to print. So there's no way you're going to know. It's just impossible. But that doesn't stop you from making a buck off of it at the same time. And he's boasting how he's using, you know, this artificial intelligence and, you know, computers to, to and, and they show you the picture. And it's like, I'm supposed to say, oh, yep, 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 that's him. If I want to see what Jesus looks like, I'll read my Bible. And uh, this is what the world, the blindness that we're up against. And, you know, it's not that we, we hate, at least speaking for myself, I don't hate any of them. I despise what they, be, what they believe, where they're going with it. But I'm very passionate about what I believe. I used to be on that team, and it was going to hell. And when I got off that team, I became passionate about not getting back on that team and getting other people off of it. We don't, you know, people do this. If you find out, hey, do you know you're eating radioactive meat? You would, you would, from a distance, try to convince them to stop doing it. From a distance. Anyway, uh, artificial gods. You have to keep them from toppling over. That's what they're seen doing. That's the satire. This explains, in practice, what is practice, invisibly nowadays, with those religions who violently defend perceived insults against their God. We are never allowed to use violence to protect our God or his image, or the understanding of him. If someone was to take our Bible and shoot a hole in it, we're not supposed to do violence to them. But the other, many other religions of the world, it's ramping up even more in India with the Hindus who are trying to really revive Hinduism as the religion of, of India, uh, the persecution against the Christians is, is really stepping up. Uh, Islam in that region of the world is always uh, acting violently against the Christians. And uh, this would explain it. When you have a faux god, a fake god, you have to prop it up because it is a product that comes out of you, out of mankind, and therefore must be sustained by mankind. Whereas we're just witnesses telling you what we've seen. And whenever so-called Christianity has opted for violence, uh, it is not biblical. And uh, anyway, verse 8, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. There is a burst of warmth coming out of the beginning of this verse, but you. He's in contrast to the idolaters, that are going against the prophecies of God, whether they know it or not, whether they know their role or not. God's people know the basics of their role, what they're supposed to be doing. And so it, it, the tone changes. And if you were reading it with music, the, the music would reflect that, hopefully. And uh, the, the repeated personal pronouns of Jacob and, and Abraham, uh, there's no apology coming from Isaiah uh, for this uncompromising contrast that, but you, Israel, belong to real people who have a real God. And this God is, cares about you. 
Israel, he says, but you, Israel, are my servant. He's moving away from the coastlands, the Gentile nations, the unbelievers. And he's now going to bring forward, in chapter 40 through 53, two servants he's going to introduce. The first represented the entire nation of Israel. Israel's supposed to be God's servant as a people, as a kingdom. The second individual, of course, is Messiah. The church is not Israel. The church is not a nation. Uh, We are a kingdom of priests in the sense uh, that uh, we uh, do the work of the Lord on behalf of people. And our prophetic element is that we, we share God's word. One servant is a struggling servant. That's Israel. The other servant is a spectacular servant. And that, of course, is the Messiah. And the emphasis will gradually shift and increase towards Messiah as we move through chapters 40 and 50 to 53. And I'm really looking forward to I was looking forward to chapter 40 forward. But then when we get into the Messianic prophecies, it's just, you know, how can you not love talking about the one you love? What is your beloved more than another that you so charge us, the women asked, the Shulamite in the Song of Solomon? And is she, let him have it. And the Holy Spirit comes along and says, now that's how you do it. Uh, Jacob, whom I have chosen. So he's re- he goes back to the consolation of chapter 40. Comfort, yes, comfort my people. And God speaking through Isaiah. Remember, this is not Isaiah. This is God speaking through him. The descendants of Abraham, my friend. Friend is a higher description than a servant in a relationship in relationships with with each other. It speaks of a greater bond. It speaks of uh, mutuality. And it is more developed. Now, a servant can be a friend, and we are servants of Christ, and we are also his friends. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 15, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you, which seems to be, wait a minute, that's not the same kind. No, it does not, because of who's saying it. It's his prerogative. He is God. And he's saying, I want you to be my friends. But to be my friends, you have to have this relationship that's in its right place, setting. That I am God and you are not. That's just a fact. He says, no longer do I call you servants. Though they are and happy to be so. We are zealous to be servants. And then he says... For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. He promoted them. He promoted us. He's trying to get us into this relationship with him where we can be more comfortable in, in, in righteousness on his terms. Thus the command. Three times Abraham is called a friend of God in the Bible. The first time is when King Jehoshaphat is praying And in that prayer, he refers to Abraham, the friend of God. Uh, Then there is, uh, and that would have happened chronologically. Jehoshaphat has already lived and and gone. Uh, Then there is um, here, this divine consolation from God. And then James, who combines God's dealings with Abraham and this passage in Isaiah. And the result is... If God can be one man's friend, he can be any man's friend. If Abraham can be God's friend, so can I. I can be God's friend. Well, I just read from John where it says that. 
Jesus called Lazarus his friend. John 11, verse 11, these things he said after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Now, of course, it's euphemistic. The language is using a euphemism for death. He's not sleeping. He's dead. But he says, our friend. He doesn't say, my friend only. He brings them. I mean, you just love this stuff. Vance Havner, if you don't know who Vance Havner is, you're missing out. You might want to look him up. Good. Uh, he's with the Lord now. Very witty. Very unique. Um, if Toja liked him, you know he's good. Anyway, Vance Havner says, if we are beset by an unseen foe, we are also befriended by an unseen friend. Great is our adversary, but greater is our ally. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's good theology. And the unseen friend, um, that's, it's so easy to lose sight of that when the visible enemy is on you. Whether it is through the courts, through the hospitals, you know, some diagnosis, whatever the enemy may be, some neighbor, uh, whatever it is, there is an unseen friend. And he is every bit the friend. He is an ally. He is on our side. His angels are rooting for people. He makes his angels ministers of fire for us. And uh, when one soul is converted, the angels rejoice. We have an unseen friend, and it does us well to be more mindful of that if we lose sight. Um, verse 9, and of course it is this unseen friend that Isaiah is so deeply in love with. And all of this, these Isaiah writings we have come from this relationship that he has with God. It's like as you read, as you consider the life and the ministry of Isaiah, it's as though he blocked out the terror of the Assyrian threat that was so real. He just blocked it out. And uh, it's almost like, uh, I guess on a smaller scale, as though he's a prophet in present-day Ukraine. With all of that madness, he's just focused on God. And, 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 and when the dust clears, he's the one standing and not the Assyrians. Verse 9, You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. He's speaking about, um, of course, the, the Jewish people, Abraham out of Mesopotamia, which from Canaan was the far side of the world, uh, Israel out of Egypt. Uh, this, the application has, is, is more than one. It's multiple. And called from its father's regions and said to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you, and have not cast you away. Well, they've been disciplined so much, even in Isaiah's time. The church has not replaced the nation of Israel. It cannot do it. Uh, just a simple, basic doctrine. Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Well, if the church is Israel, according to that verse, the church is lost and needs to be saved. See the madness of such a theology? It's a broken theology. Uh, and some people lap it up. Um, well, they don't... You know, when you... The first one to get to you can make a deep impression. The only defense is whose image is pressed upon you. 
When Jesus said, go grab a coin and tell me whose image is on it. We like to say, well, I can tell you Caesar's image is on the coin, Lord, but I want your image impressed upon me. It's, we call it Christ's likeness, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's commitment. Uh, so, I, incidentally, Isaiah nowhere calls Cyrus God's servant. Even though he is used by God, he's not a cup. See, that's the part. He's not a believer. He's still an outsider. And he was kind to other religions, too. And so his kindness to Israel, though called by God, is no indication that he became a believer. Where it's a little different with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar looks like in the end, he, he did become a believer. Anyway, verse, verse 10, the believer in Yahweh, that is. For I, pardon me, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. How many times have you used that verse when you were going through bad times and it didn't seem to be working? <laughs> so uh, it's not like, you know, there, there's some stories about people out by grizzly, grizzly bear, bears and um, using the bear spray and then getting eaten. <laughs> and, he's like, and they know that because... When they find the remains, they, it's pepper spray everywhere. And they, anyway, they, they find out. And, uh, you know, you say, well, you should have used a, something other than a bear spray, like a lead spray. But anyhow, um, my point is, you know, he used the wrong thing. For us, we don't want to use the wrong thing. We're subjects to the king. And God loves to tell his people, fear not. But his, his definition is higher than ours. Not different, it's higher. He tells us, do not fear, not so much to calm our fears, but to keep us focused, because there we can be strong. And you know, if you've ever feel, felt panic sweeping up, you're getting weak very quickly. Fear is not a hollow encouragement. And we're not to use it that way. I mean, you're not in an airplane crashing and saying, oh, don't worry, fear not. <laughs> That's probably not the right thing to say to your fellow passengers. The gospel would probably, well, they'll give me, tell me, just use a scripture to tell you what I'm thinking. Revelation chapter 2, to the church at Smyrna. This is a suffering church. One of two churches of the seven that received no rebuke. But unlike Philadelphia, that church was promised to be spared tribulation that's coming on the whole earth. Thus, we be one of the reasons why we believe in a raptured church. But here, this church wasn't going to be spared. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Lord, you just contradicted yourself. No, I did not. Suffer them, but keep your faith intact. Go out in glory. Unbelievers can do this. I expect my people to do this. Do your duty. Complete your mission. Do your job. Bring glory. How do I bring glory? Remain the witness of Christ. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. There's nothing in that that's hollow. Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. He's saying to them, it's not going to be okay, but you be okay in the midst of it. That's Christianity. It's at, its, at its highest level. Uh, you know, I would love to go out that way, but I'm afraid to go out that way. 
And so when we say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's what he's talking about. Fear not. Don't be separated. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword, yet in all these things we're more than conquerors. That's what it means to say, fear not. That's what it means when when the... uh, Martyrs went to their stakes praising and singing hymns as they were, the fires were burning around them until they died of suffocation and then burned to death or died from whatever else, other causes of such a horrific thing. Uh, you know, this was just a couple of, a few hundred years ago, right in a, England, where they, spre- where they speak, um, they don't speak American over there. Anyway, uh, anyhow, uh, I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you. Will he help me? And will I be satisfied with the measure of his help? Or will I want more? That's the flesh talking. The flesh doesn't shut up. I am with you. I am your God. I will uphold you. I am present. I have a relationship with you. And I will act in some form. It may not be the way you want. When, when the angel of the Lord stood by Paul and said... Paul, no, there'll be no loss of life this night. He still had to get wet. He still had to end up in the sea. He still got bit, was bitten by a serpent. So uh, this is reality. And we shouldn't back down from it. We should trust God in the face of reality. Enjoy the good times uh, under your vine and under your you know, tree. Enjoy it. But if the times, if it gets rocky, then, then you, we have to just uh, pick our faith up to the next level. With my righteous right hand, the, God's character and ability, that's what that speaks of. Now verse 11, behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing, and those who strive with you shall perish. Incentive to not be against the nation of Israel. Now... I mean, it doesn't mean that we hold Jewish people as individuals as some sort of super being. But as a people, we understand the only rational explanation for anti-Semitism is Satan. There is no... Why do you hate these people? I, I heard one guy... I won't say what religion. He wasn't a Christian. And he said, yeah, Jews, they, they just kill a neighborhood. They go into it and they just kill it. How do they do that? As far as I can see, working in these bad neighborhoods, they're bringing stores for people to buy things. And you're hating them? If that shop closed up, where would, where would the mother with all the kids go to get milk and, and all the other stuff that she needs? Where's that coming from? Uh, what country have, has Israel invaded? I, I mean, not one. And when they do go into another country, it's a counter-strike because their, their philosophy of war is, if you're going to attack us, we're going to fight over your territory as much as we can. We're going to drop bombs on you, not us. And it works for them. Uh, so anyhow, uh, just the, in, the insanity of anti-Semitism. It doesn't mean I have to like what a, a Jewish individual does or is about because there are many of them. On a, Judas Iscariot, you know, he, he's not in heaven because he's Jewish. Uh, so it, it, it's a very sane approach. But now think of this. They're going to perish, the ones who were incensed against Israel. Add up all those years, those 3,000 years since Isaiah spoke these words, and what number of people would you come up with 
through history that have been against Israel, heads of state. I mean, just the whole armies. And it's not going to stop until God comes and puts an end to it personally. The, they, the Armageddon will be the gathering. We don't have time. I was going to read from Zechariah. We, just the, the, the world trying to heave Israel away. For what? I've got other countries I'd like to throw away before I even begin to get to Israel. Uh, but why don't you, you know, anyway, coming back to this. So, I mean, it doesn't mean we, we don't hate Israel, but you can hate these guys. I'm not saying that. Shall, shall be ashamed and disgraced. Um, and since 1948, how many times has Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and the Arab League and foreign fighters with them been ashamed when Israel cleaned their clocks? Uh, just, you know, they don't even attack them anymore. It's like, you know, <laughs> those guys have a pretty good army. Um, they shall be as nothing. Um, it, these cross-references are all over the scripture for this. And those who strive against Israel will perish. So you could say you pity the fool who seeks Israel's harm just because. Um, John's gospel, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and he gets to the part about that whosoever should believe in him shall not, and there's that big word, perish. And sometimes the world needs us to help them explain that word to them. Verse 12 you shall seek them, not find them. Those who contend with you, those who go to war against you, shall be as nothing, as non-existent, uh, a non-existent thing. That is to perish. Verse 13, For I, Yahweh, your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, uh, Fear not, I will help you. The right hand, of course, is the emblem of our strength, but uh, this is compounded and made stronger by the hand the hand of God. Um, anyway, verse 14, fear not. There it comes again. There are quite a few of these repetitive, the who's, the I wills, the fear nots. There are several others in this one chapter. Uh, uh, just a very wonderful way the prophet expresses himself. Verse 14, fear not. You worm J Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, says Yahweh, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. This is the third fear not. You worm Jacob. That's not a way to compliment somebody. Well, it's not meant to be a compliment nor an insult. It may be pointing to what people were saying about the Jews, what they were, you know, they're just worms. Uh, it could be a little sarcasm there or reverse, I guess. But um, what does a worm do? Well, it hugs the bottom. And it represents the lowest of the low, and they're destructive. You get a hole in your wool jacket, and some larvae from the moth has gotten to it. That's a worm uh, in, in biblical language. Um, do not lay up your good where moth and rust will, will get. Well, because of the Lord, Israel um, was held in contempt by other nations, and God is going to empower them. And this worm, as so presented, will be flattening mountains. We'll get to that. And then he, he puts right on the heels of that, you men of Israel. So God does not see them as worms, but as the men of Israel. I will help you, says Yahweh, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah uses this phrase more than anyone in Scripture. 23 of uh, 23 uh, times he uses it. The other 13 uh, go to other writers. The Redeemer, the Hebrew word there, goel, 
Boaz was the Goel to Ruth. He redeemed Ruth. He was the one that came and saved her from poverty. And uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, they shall um, be the children, sons of God. Boy, I hate when I mix a verse up. I'm sorry, I'm not standing for this. I'm not taking it. Not from me and not from myself. I just got a blank on that verse and it bugs me because I enjoy going over the, in memory, the Beatitudes. There's the kingdom of heaven. Such a... Oh, I knew that. It's just testing you. Anyway, blessed are the poor in spirit. There's the kingdom of heaven. And Ruth was in the poor of spirit category. Spiritually, her spirit was not poor. Your God will be my God. Your people... I mean, she just laid out one of the best speeches in all the scripture. But uh, materialistically, they had a... They were, they were not doing too well. And Boaz comes along and, and everything changes. Uh, Christ is our Goel uh, from the incarnate, when the incarnate incarnation, the coming of Christ to the resurrection. He is our Redeemer. And so again, here in verse 14, the word Redeemer in English is Goel in the Hebrew. And there are many illustrations in Scripture of how profound a role Jesus fulfilled in being our Goel. Verse 15 Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with, a sharp, with sharp teeth. You shall thrash the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You will, verse 16, winnow them. The wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in Yahweh and glory in the Holy One of Israel. So they're not the worm. They're now this instrument of destruction against those who would destroy them pulverizing their enemies. Um, God is giving them, as I mentioned in the beginning, Isaiah's prophecy extends to the coming of Christ. Verse 17, The poor and the needy shall seek water, but there is none. Their tongues shall fail for thirst. I, Yahweh, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. So troublesome times, but ultimately, victory for the nation. Verse 18, I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle, the oil, <clears throat> the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together. Verse 20 that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of Yahweh has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. So, of course, this goes to the through this period of time, past the tribulation, into the millennial reign where God begins to rebuild uh, Israel and the world, incidentally. It's not just uh, Israel. The capital will be there, but the whole world will benefit from the Jewish Messiah who becomes the Messiah of everyone. And that's why the significance of calling him the Christ is actually profound. He's moved on from being the Jewish uh, redeemer, uh, savior, to a global savior. All that, and, and that's how it will be in the millennial reign. Anyway, today... Israel is a major exporter of not only fruits and vegetables and flowers, but also of technology. Uh, they hold the bulk of the world's Nobel Peace Prizes. And uh, I would add, in Israel, all the fruit gets there the same day. 
I mean, the land is not that big. I mean, it just they're growing bananas, which they use to throw at the enemy when attacked, and <laughs> they slip and they eat them and they die. And uh, <laughs> if you like bananas, you should stop. Anyway, verse twenty-one. Um, Present your case, says Yahweh. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the King. And so now he's going to go. I know we're running close to out of time here. We got a little bit left, almost done. Now he's going to deal with the idols, idols again. So he started out with the Gentile nations, using a Gentile Cyrus. He then addresses his people again in this section, and then he sums up this what we call the forty-first chapter with uh, addressing the idolaters. And so the tone returns, and he knows Isaiah. The religions of the world are the religions of men and therefore have nothing to offer men. Part of a thing cannot be greater than itself. And that's a basic uh, law that when it comes to religion, evidently, it doesn't count. This is why we became Christians, because we know the alternatives are false. It's, it's by default. Like, well, that can't be true. And then you look at the gospel, you say, I know that's true. The, the one that can come up and tell me to my face that I'm a sinner and I can't fix this is the one telling the truth. If the one come up to me and says, you know what, you're really a sinner before God, a holy God. If you do this stuff, you can undo it. Well, that's not true. Nobody can, once you've sinned, you can't undo it. You got to get rid of it. The blood of Jesus Christ washes away the sin. Anyway, Revelation 9, verse 20. This idolatry going right up until the tribulation period. But the rest of mankind who were not killed with these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, but that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver, brass, stone, wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. There's no created thing that you can assign to God. That's the point of the wood, the hay, the stubble, the silver. There's more to it. That's just one application. There's nothing, whether you create it in your head or someone else created it and you joined on, it is an abomination to God. Uh, verse 22, let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us things to come. Verse 23, show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. So Isaiah says, all right, bring your little statues with you and do something. Just do something. Show me something that would make me say, huh. You know, this is what Muhammad went to the Jewish people and he said, I'm a prophet. And they said, prove it. And he couldn't. Eh, so we don't want to believe you. And he didn't like him ever since. That's, a, that's the truth. That's a short story of what happened. Um, this uh, charge is that they cannot properly interpret past events and they can't tell future events. That's what he's saying in those verses that I just read. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen? Let them show us former things. They can't even tell you what history means in a consistent and reliable way. And so we have that proverb. Uh, he who doesn't know history is destined to repeat it. 
um, or there's others too. Anyhow, coming uh, back to this, man has tried foretelling the future by reading the stars, whatever that means. I mean, if I were, the only way I could read a star is if they were shaped in letters. <laughs> like a, okay, uh, talking to the dead, witchcraft, channeling, all in vain, instead of coming to the Lord. Peter says, we have the more sure word confirmed. All right, well, verse 42, indeed, you are uh, speaking of the idols, you are nothing and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. God taunts, God's taunts are deadly. That's what's happening in the scripture. When he mocks this unbelief, God's taunts are deadly serious and it carries a judgment with it. It's not a joke. Verse 25, I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name, and he shall come against the princes, and uh, through mortar as the potter treads the clay. And now he's back to Cyrus. Um, Cyrus will invoke the name of Yahweh, but he did it also of Marduk of Babylon and of Sin, the moon god of of, of Ur of the Chaldeans. So it's not that he became a believer. The, 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 whatever historical writings we have or evidences, there's nothing that indicates he was a believer. Could he have eventually become? Of course, but we have just no record of that. And I think it's important. We're going to stay true to the reality and not just, well, we really want him to be a believer. Uh, I do too, but uh, there's no proof. Uh, who has declared from the beginning that we may know and former times that we may say he is righteous? Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. You catch the surelys there. Verse 27, the first time I said to Zion, look, they are here, and I will give Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. So he's, the time's going to come where Yahweh claims credit for his prophecies and that's just a short answer to that. I, you, an alternate translation, I first will give to Zion and to Jerusalem the messenger of good tidings. Behold, behold them. So there the prophet is saying, when the time comes, they're going to see the fulfillment of this prophecy. Verse 28, for I looked and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor who, when I asked for, of them, could answer a word. So the idols just couldn't produce. Verse 29, Indeed, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. That would get him into a fist fight if he said that in the wrong place. But that is the truth. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, your word, a lamp to our feet. The warnings are so clear to those who have the Spirit. And it's very difficult to share this with unbelievers, Lord, may you help us. Use us to save souls. Get us home safely tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.